The economic performance of emerging market economies since the onset of the pandemic has varied considerably. Goods exporters have generally fared relatively well, while service exporters have struggled amid the lack of tourism. Moreover, vaccination rates and policy choices have added to that variation. Further waves of infections may possibly also lead to weaker economic growth, particularly from countries with low shares of fully vaccinated populations. Government balance sheets, meanwhile, have mostly weakened. Um, rising interest rates in the US can also weaken emerging market currencies and exacerbate inflation. Joining me today to discuss the outlook for emerging markets post-COVID are David Rees, Senior Emerging Markets Economist at Schroeder's, and Daniel Casali, Chief Investment Strategist at Tilney Smith & Williamson. Hi, David. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Emma. Hi. Great. Thanks for joining me today. So I will kick off with our first question. Uh, if I could come to you first, um, Daniel. How are global shifts affecting the outlook for emerging markets? Well, I think if you want to look at emerging markets, the first thing you really need to look at is the performance of China. China's been performing quite poorly at the moment, uh, and that's really due to a confluence of factors related to COVID-0 uh, lockdowns, for example, concerns about the American deposit receipts that China has, uh, and also the concerns about uh, secondary sanctions against the country. Uh, if you want to look at emerging markets as a whole, it's down 9.8% year to date, and it's really been weighed down by China. There are other markets that are doing actually quite well, uh, such as Brazil, which is up 32%. But if you want to look at emerging markets, the first port of call has to be China. Okay, thanks for that, Daniel. I mean, do you see, how long do you anticipate this sort of the weighing down that China is causing for the rest of the emerging markets? How long do you anticipate that to last for? It's really based on two things. It's uh, Firstly, we have to see when the Chinese authorities are going to loosen up on the COVID net zero policies and the lockdowns. Uh, and the second thing is we have to have some sort of uh, clarity on the situation, which is difficult uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. What seems to be weighing down China at the moment is lots of concerns about potentially there could be secondary sanctions against the country. And given what we saw with Russia uh, and its negative effect on their markets, uh, this is a key concern that's, uh, that's weighing down on uh, emerging market investors. Thanks for that, Daniel. David, if I could come to you, um, how are global shifts affecting the outlook for emerging markets? Well, I think we've got a couple of uh, a couple of key issues going on at the moment, haven't we? One is that we're seeing a move towards tighter monetary policy in in, in developed markets, particularly the US, obviously, where it looks like the Fed's going to start raising rates quite aggressively. Um, and also, the, one of the spillovers from you know recent events in Ukraine. Uh, are that commodity prices have generally risen, uh, which is exacerbating already pretty hot inflation trends in, in most of the world. So what's that going to do? Well, it, it, you know, higher commodity prices through food or energy are generally a tax on growth. Uh, you're going to get tighter monetary policy kicking in as well. So probably all of that is going to squeeze uh, demand for manufactured goods over, you know, over the course of this year. And Actually, adding to that, you're also going to get a reopening of the services sector, which might tilt demand back towards services and away from goods. So, you know, that instinctively feels pretty challenging for export dependent economies and the financial markets there. So, you know, particularly in Asia, uh, we're going to get the trade data from China coming this week. And, you know, we're expected export growth to be rolling over. Um, and, and so that's a pretty big headwind. 
I guess the flip side to that is um, you are seeing some regions benefiting from in terms of trade improvement. So, uh, you know, we've already heard from Daniel that markets in, in Latin America, Brazil have been doing well, uh, reflecting that improvement in terms of trade. And that should filter through to slightly, slightly better uh, GDP growth there as well. And then, of course, China uh, is a big kind of issue of its own with its zero policy uh, towards COVID. Uh, we, we've had a pretty downbeat expectation for growth in China uh, this year, partly because of the slowdown in, in, in exports that, that we think is going to come through now, and also because the domestic economy is just going to be hampered by COVID and what's going on in the real estate market. Uh, so that's probably going to continue for a while longer. But some of the leading indicators are starting to improve. And so, you know, that, that could be a more interesting story for the second half of the year. Um, you've spoken about the um, positive trends in Latin America. What sort of what opportunities does this present for investors and what trends are we likely to see emerging from regions like Latin America? Yeah, so I mean, we came into this year actually looking for opportunities in in local currency fixed income in Latin America because, uh, you know, like the rest of the world, inflation is very high. But a key difference to say the US is that, you know, central banks have been raising interest rates quite aggressively. And so we were looking for the the kind of peak in inflation and then turning attention back to what is pretty weak growth in, in the region and in Brazil in particular. And, you know, usually that's a good time to sort of engage with fixed income markets. Um, I mean, that got pushed back a little bit because of, you know, the kind of the risk off and the the, 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 the sort of hit to sentiment from, from events in Ukraine. But we might start to see those opportunities present themselves again because, you know, I did highlight that terms of trade are improving and that can give a little bit of a lift to growth in, in, in some of these economies. But, you know, the short point is, you know, expectations of growth are likely to go from zero to one rather than anything better than that. And so, you know, really interest rates are going to start looking quite high once inflation rolls over and that, that should be an opportunity. Daniel, what about you? What um, Do you echo David's thoughts? Well, partially, yeah. I mean, I think uh, if you look at the Latin American stock markets, they've done particularly well, as, as David's saying, with the improvement in terms of trade. But I think uh, we'll start to be looking at uh, the areas which have been underperforming this year, which is really the emerging market, Asia, and particularly China. And I think the key catalyst to drive that is the fact that in this background where developed markets are actually tightening policy, China's already started to loosen. If we went back to December uh, last year, we had the uh, the uh, Politburo, which is the top 25 members of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, in their communique that month, they released uh, a report that said that they wanted to be focused less aggressively on uh, regulations. And they're looking at uh, stabilizing growth, which means that the credit tightening that done the previous year has probably stopped. And indeed, if we looked in the last couple of months, uh, if you look at their credit data, which they call the total social finance, it has started to pick up quite aggressively. So it does tell us that uh, the Chinese authorities do recognize that there is an issue here in terms of growth for China, particularly after these lockdowns, is going to suppress growth in that first and, and second quarter. And this tells us that uh, if you look back historically, it's this credit that really drives uh, emerging market Asia uh, performance relative to developed markets. So we see this has got further to go. And there's also a political aspect to this, and that is President Xi is likely to get a third term in October. And, and the last thing he wants is that the economy 
disappointing expectations. He really wants the economy to be firing on, and the authorities, uh, they want the economy to be doing better. Uh, they've already set a target at 5.5%, so they're going to try their level best to try and achieve that, and that will be coming from policy loosening. It's this policy lead, uh, loosening, as well as the lead indicators that David's talking about, that could potentially lead to upside in Asia. Okay, great. And um, to what extent is or will emerging markets drive global growth? Um, Daniel, if I can ask you that question. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what developed markets are doing at the moment, they're tightening policy, whether it's on the fiscal side or the, or the monetary side, whereas China, as I said, was uh, loosening policy. So you'd expect uh, China to be contributing more to growth, supporting the upside uh, against this background of policy tightening from the rest of the world. So uh, on the macroeconomic point of view, you could expect some uh, potential upside coming from China. And also in terms of trade improving uh, for the commodity producers, uh, like in Brazil, uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, the energy producers, uh, they should be contributing more towards growth. In terms of um, emerging markets, I mean, they've always been, they're always considered to be quite, you know, considered to be risky assets. Are they, would you say they're less risky than they have been in the past previously? Or what would you say to that, um, David? Well, I guess, you know, something that has improved over time is that the, the kind of the basic external fundamentals and, and debt dynamics in a lot of EMs have, have kind of improved in, you know, from the perspective of you don't see as many crises. So obviously in the 80s, the 90s, the noughties, you saw kind of regional crises in Latin America and Asia and, and, and Central Eastern Europe. Uh, and, you know, a, lo a lot of those issues uh, that kind of underpin those crises have been cleared up. So, you know, we, we put a piece out last week looking at the potential spillovers from a, def from a default by Russia um, you know, because you always get questions about contagion from from sovereign defaults, and you know, if you look at the kind of external liquidity indicators, some of the smaller frontier markets, you know, clearly have got issues. Sri Lanka is is an obvious yes. one, and they've got a political crisis that they're going through there, and probably they're going to have to get an IMF deal and restructure their debts, and there might be some other ones pulled into that as well. But if you look at if you look at the big emerging markets, you know, very few of them have these kind of issues. And so, you know, are able to sort of ride out those those problems from, a, from an economic perspective. So you're not going to get, a, you know, a big EM crisis necessarily. But the assets are clearly still risky assets. So, you know, when we get periods of risk off, then. EMs tend to uh, tend to fare pretty badly still. It's just that you know you get a volatility in markets of, rather than sort of outright crises, I suppose. Thank you, David and, and Daniel. What are your thoughts on that? On yeah, um, I mean, obviously, emerging markets are a risky asset when you're be investing it. Uh, but I would want to make two points. Number one is that if you look at the valuations, for example, uh, look at MSCI China, for example, it's trading on historically cheap level of just 10.6 times one year forward earnings. Emerging markets as a whole, about 12 times, it's still very, very cheap. So a lot of the negative news, I would say, is in the price. But the second point is that if you want to look at how uh, markets are reacting to interest rate sensitivity, then you'd find some of the uh, US mega caps, the technology stocks, uh, they've been quite volatile this year. And that's because they've been bid up to very high valuation levels. And now that we're moving to a, a period of higher interest rates, higher inflation, uh, these areas of the market, such as US tech, is actually just as volatile, if not potentially more volatile than emerging markets. 
so that needs to be considered as well the valuation of the market and also how sensitive they are to interest rates sure and we, we've spoken about you know china um entering into more lockdowns with the other emerging market economies are, is is there likely to be the same same risk in terms of maybe perhaps brazil um, well, what's their approach to lockdown are they are they less stringent than than china when it comes to instilling or implementing lockdowns um david if i could ask you on that Well, I don't think anyone's as stringent as China when it comes to imp- implementing lockdowns and pursuing zero COVID policies anymore. You know, most con- most other countries that were pursuing those kind of policies have kind of thrown in the towel, I think, and have started to move away from that. Um, I guess in, in other areas of the world, you know, like you highlighted Brazil, but India, uh, Mexico, you know, wherever you want to go, I guess the, the difference is that it was a slow start with vaccination rates and the those countries therefore sort of suffered disproportionately, I suppose, in the initial phase of the pandemic because essentially they were at the back of the queue, unfortunately, when it came to getting vaccines and rolling them out. But I think, you know, most of these countries now are in a bet- better position in terms of vaccination. Probably they've been using more more effective vaccines as well that have been, port- been imported rather than some of the Chinese vaccines. And also the policymakers seem, you know, more, you know, happy to rely on those vaccines and allow case numbers to be higher, i.e. moving more towards a kind of living with COVID type strategy that we're seeing um, in, in Britain, certainly. I mean, none of this precludes the threat of future lockdowns because we don't know uh, what the next variant of COVID will look like just because the current COVID strain seems manageable doesn't mean the next one will be as manageable and you know we have a whole department in Schroders that that are tasked with monitoring this um you know across the world but it does seem you know notwithstanding those risks it does seem that those economies generally are getting back to some form of normality and therefore covid should be less of an issue so i think china is really out on its own now in terms of its covid policy and I guess one of the big questions for the next two years is is how China moves away from that because such a large part of the of the global economy is still prone to very strict lockdowns and that could obviously upset markets. It could also, you know, bring bottlenecks in global supply chains back to the fore at a time when inflation's high. And so that that is clearly a big issue that needs to be ironed out. Thank you, David. Dan, did you want to add to that? I don't know if I saw. I was going to say the same things as David that really there, uh, but there's, there's no one really out there with the same sort of uh, COVID net zero policies. But just to echo what David's saying about the supply chain disruption, it couldn't come at a worse possible time because there's still very, very tight supply chains. And also the fact that if China uh, is going to slow down a little bit, uh, that obviously affects demand for raw materials and countries such as Brazil uh, would be vulnerable to this. So China does affect the rest of the world, particularly for raw material demand. Actually, that was going to take me to my next point, actually. I was going to ask about um, the um, consequences of, of the China slowdown and other um, emerging markets and how related um, they are. Could you perhaps maybe expand on that since you've already started that point, actually, Daniel? Yeah, but if China does have a significant impact on uh, supply chain disruption, which seems to be the case, 
and it leads to higher inflation, not just in emerging markets, but in the West. Uh, that could potentially lead to central banks such as the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, to maintain even more hawkish monetary policy. And that could translate uh, in a convoluted way back into emerging markets uh, and suppress not only global growth, but uh, investment in emerging markets. So uh, in a way, China really matters in terms of this COVID zero policy. Yes, that's very, um, it's very true. I guess we're living in the global, global world. You, you realise how interconnected we all are, really. Um, I did see something uh, that came out the other day with regards to uh, China. Um, it was regards to plans for a new solar and wind park in China. Uh, total output uh, to be 240% higher than all renewables in Germany combined. I don't know if you, you either of you spotted that at all. Um, and I was just going to ask, moving on to going to move on to the next topic, looking at renewable energy um, with with emerging markets and how far along the journey emerging markets are when it comes to renewable energy. We saw the the government, UK government, published its energy strategy last week. David, if I could come to you first with that question. Yeah, well, I mean, generally, it's going to be the case that emerging markets will lag behind. I think with energy transition china clearly is in a is in a better position than most for a couple of reasons one it can afford and push through policy changes you know the centralized nature of policy making means that they can do that uh, they've got the resources to and of course they manufacture a lot of the a lot of the equipment that's used for energy transition so you know china's quite neatly positioned itself as the main producer of solar panels of, of wind turbines you know so on and so forth so, you know, clearly China has got an advantage there. Uh, for other emerging markets, it's a question of, I guess, finding the money to do it and, and, and also governments pushing it through because it's quite a large undertaking. It's going to require heavy investment. And, you know, the, the kind of public sector debt dynamics in a lot of these countries aren't that great. And so you've seen uh, countries like India asking for grants, essentially, um, to 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 get on with energy transition, or South Africa, I should say, um, asking for grants to to help them with the transition. Um, and then maybe I'll just flag that last year we put out a report looking at the relative impact of, of energy transition on on emerging markets through the commodities channel. And this is kind of a longer term theme, but obviously, you know, it, it's intuitively. Uh, or conceptually easy to to kind of assume that exporters of uh, fossil fuels in the very long run are going to lose out and potentially have a lot of trapped assets in the ground. Um, you know, at the moment, we kind of see it under investment and obviously events in Russia supporting fossil fuel prices. But, um, you know, in the long run, you know, presumably prices go to zero more or less. And so you get trapped assets and some of those some of those economies are going to have to try and reinvent themselves, um, but others should benefit because, you know, energy transition is going to generate huge structural demand for some key metals that go into uh, the kind of the batteries or the equipment required for, for generating energy. And so, um, you know, producers of things like copper, lithium, nickel, you know, they should do relatively well in the long run. Thanks for that, David. Daniel, do you have any thoughts on that on regions, emerging markets, uh, regions which will do or are doing well when it comes to renewable energy or are making headway? Yeah, I think there has been a sea change event with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's not just all about uh, ESG and renewables. 
uh, and climate change. Another key impact is energy security. Uh, and that's what we're realizing in Europe with our energy prices going northwards. And it's the same story uh, in emerging markets. I mean, energy is very linked to the production of food, fertilizers, et cetera, and transport. So uh, they've got to take that one into account. So it's not just all about investing in uh, renewables. Uh, the emerging markets, as far as I can see, uh, there's still going to be huge uh, demand for fossil fuels, and that's not going to change anytime soon. And I think that sea change event with energy security, uh, that probably means there's going to be more investment perhaps uh, coming into fossil fuels to complement the renewables. I think they're both going to go hand in hand. Uh, but I think the argument that uh, we're going to move away from fossil fuels, uh, I think that uh, that's been kicked down the road a bit longer because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, with emerging markets, a large number of them have a high uh, percentage of the youthful population. How will that help them in the future uh, with regards to growth and their economies? Um, Daniel, if I ask you that question. Well, I think um, you can make a comparison between those with ageing populations and those with younger populations. So countries such as Philippines, Nigeria, which has got much younger age population, very strong population growth. Uh, I mean, their growth rates will probably be uh, still supported by the demographics. If you look at countries such as China, which is now ageing, and we're now starting to see their working age population start to shrink, that so-called labour dividend that they had since they joined, uh, well, from the 1990s and joined WTO in 2001, uh, that's probably peaked. So you probably should expect structurally weaker growth coming down. And indeed, we've seen that over the past decade or so. Uh, so demographics support the younger general, younger population countries such as Philippines, and it's will be a slight impediment, I guess, for a longer term basis for countries such as um, China. Um, my last question, I was going to ask about in terms of the outlook for emerging markets, when you consider that there is an inequity when it comes to uh, vaccinations and who is receiving the vaccination and the proportion or the percentage of people in these some, some of these emerging markets who have been vaccinated and how that will play out with regards to growth um, of these emerging markets. David, how much of an impact will the inequality or the inequity when it comes to vaccinations, how much of that of, of an impact will that have on the growth outlook for emerging markets, for the different emerging market economies? Yeah, uh, well, I guess there's a couple of strands to it. One, as I said earlier, hopefully we're largely beyond um, the, the the kind of worst phase of the pandemic. And so uh, the kind of the rollout or access to vaccines now, hopefully it's going to be less of an issue in the future. But it clearly has been an issue over the last couple of years. And you would think that those EMs that, you know, essentially were hit hardest by the pandemic are more likely to have scarring uh, and, and therefore sort of more damage to the longer term potential growth profiles. And I guess the issue is as well that a lot of those EMs that were hit hard by the pandemic uh, already had pretty weak growth. So there's going to be a challenge, regardless, actually, frankly, of vaccines, but there's going to be a challenge for quite a few of these economies to get themselves going again. I mean, I just looked at some numbers earlier, and if you, you know, just a rough estimate, Latin America as a region, it's only grown 10% over the last decade in terms of GDP, so it's barely grown. Um, and so, you know, maybe the pandemic exacerbated some of those issues, but that's a long-term issue that, that the region has had. And 
of course, you know the re- the reason is that you know commodity prices hit the wall after after a kind of super cycle, and the the region is very dependent on that. So there's clearly a long term challenge to try and move away from that, and probably the pandemic hasn't helped. Thanks very much for that, David. Uh, Daniel, do you have any closing thoughts with regards to that question um, when you look ahead and for emerging markets post COVID? Yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that it's the vaccinations that uh, is going to affect the growth. It's where the governments decide to lock down. And it's difficult to separate vaccinations without it being political. Uh, there are question marks about whether the vaccination is um, effective, for example, in China and to the West, because we do know it, it can. it's not really uh, reliable in stopping transmission. Uh, but it really boils down to what governments want to do with what this. Uh, are they going to sort of live with COVID, which we are doing in the UK? Or are they taking a more political aspect to this, which is going on in China? And there certainly is a link there between uh, President Xi, uh, who's expected to get appointed for a third term uh, later this autumn, and uh, the uh, COVID lockdowns at the moment. Um, being cynical, I would not, I'd expect the two things to be linked. And I think the Chinese authorities want to make sure that there is no COVID outbreak uh, at his appointment. Um, so I, I'd boil it down to how governments react. Do we live with COVID? Uh, then those countries should be uh, do better off because there'll be less restrictions on their growth. Or are there political aspects here where governments decide to lock down, which is happening in China, and that could be suppressing growth? Great. Thank you so much, um, Dave, and thank you very much, Daniel, uh, for that. It was a very insightful discussion about looking at all things emerging markets and what the future potentially holds for them. It's very interesting topic there and gives us quite a lot of food for thought so thank you very much and thank you all for listening and do remember to tune into the next edition of the ft advisor podcast imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.